in that which is to come, and hath put all things, everyone say all things, under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things, say all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth it all in all. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and I echo the word and the prayer of Paul this morning, that you would grant unto your people here this morning the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, Lord, that our eyes would be enlightened, that we would see the hope of your calling and the glorious riches that you have inherited through your church, Lord Jesus, and that we would see the exceeding greatness of your power and our place in your kingdom and in the body of Christ. Father, I pray spirit of revelation and understanding on every person here today. In Jesus' name, I bind every spirit that would try to hinder your word and what you want to accomplish. Every human spirit, every demonic spirit, anything, God, that would step in the way, distract or cause division in our minds to not hear what your word says. Father, loose your word to accomplish exactly what it was set out to do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and you can be seated finally. In Jesus' name. You need an apocalypse this morning. And I'm not talking about the latest Hollywood movies that depict some kind of virus that rampages the world and turns everybody into a zombie. That's kind of the image we get when we say the word apocalypse. I mean, that's the image I got when I when I read it, it, you know, you think of the the phrase apocalypse or the word apocalypse and the phrase end of the world comes to mind. Maybe a sun-baked, haggard-looking man with a sandwich board sign walking up and down the street saying the end is near, right? That's what, those are the images that come to my brain when I think of apocalypse. I think of, uh, world wars and viruses and COVID-19 and all those things that just kind of destroy civilization as we know it. Governments and rulerships coming to odds. That's Apocalypse bears those images and feelings and emotions that are terrifying and, and not good. So why on earth, Pastor, would you turn to tell us to turn to complete strangers next to us or maybe friends or family and tell them they need this kind of end-of-world situation in their life? They need some kind of zombie to come chew on their head or, or infect them with an incurable disease. They need, what do you mean we need an apocalypse? Well, this is the problem with the English language. English language is what you might call a melting pot of languages, really. There's a lot of words that are pulled into the English language from other languages. We call them transliterated words. They're words that have been sucked into the vacuum uh, of the English language. And uh, for those of you that are, are maybe proficient and educators in English, I love English class. It was one of my favorite classes in school. Um, and, but I, I recognize the complexity of the English language is quite, quite complex. It's, you know, like C, C, and C are like three different words. Spelt, some of them spelt the same way, some of them spelt differently, but pronounced differently. Just like, really, it's, it's confusing. But apocalypse is one of those words that we have pulled into the English language, but we don't really know its origin until you do a little deep diving and find out that apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypto or apocalypsis. 
And it literally means to reveal, to unveil, to uncover. Uh, for a long time, before we bought, brought this new pulpit out and put it on the stage, there was, a, it, there was a sheet that was covering it up in the back because we didn't want you to see it. And anybody that walked in was like, what's under the sheet? And, and I would... For those of you that were here alone, I'd give you an apocalypse. I'd, I'd take the sheet off and reveal that which was covered up. You had an apocalypse. You had an, an aha moment. For, for the, uh, the culturally old in the room, and I don't mean age old, I mean culturally old. You're old school. You remember the movie The Wizard of Oz, right? And at the end of the movie, the little dog gave the whole audience an apocalypse because he pulled the curtain back and the wizard turned out to be this man behind a curtain. And, and he kept saying, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Uh, because he didn't want them to know that there wasn't really a wizard. It was just this old man behind a curtain. Uh, so an apocalypse is not really the end of the world. And, and, and you can perhaps see why it's used in that light. Because the, the book of Revelation, which... Uh, the book of Revelation is actually the book of Apocalypse. Because in the, the Greek, the word apocalypse means reveal, to reveal, to, to expose something. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is a, a book filled with lots of scary images. Beasts with heads of leopards and bodies of a bear and the mouth of a lion and ten horns and little horns and and dragons, and angels, and fire, and brimstone, and, and, and locusts with long hair like women's hair, and teeth with the teeth of lie. Like, it, it's lots of imagery in the book of Revelation that are very terrifying, but it's not meant to be terrifying. It's meant to be a revelation of Jesus Christ, that we're not talking about the book of Revelation today. That's not at all what this message is about. But what you need this morning is an apocalypse. I need an apocalypse. We all need an apocalypse. And what Paul actually prayed for in Ephesians 1, verse 17, is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and apocalypse in the revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul prayed that you would have an apocalypse, a moment when God pulls back the curtain and that which was confusing becomes clear. That which is cloudy becomes day. That which is, is, is shadowed over becomes filled with light. In fact, he even says that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. Paul operates on the assumption that we all come into the kingdom of God with our eyes being darkened with our eyes being covered or shadowed or, or, or blinded to some degree. And he says, I, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you would know a lot of things. And by the way, there is a lot of things Paul wants the church to know in this scripture. And it would take many Sundays to walk through every one of them in detail. But I'm just going to give you a quick overview and the essence of the message, one of the repeating frame, refrains in this, in this apocalypse that Paul wants the church to have, is he wants the church to know, first of all, that, that there is a hope you have. And that God has called you to this hope. 
that there is something that transcends the day-to-day routine of life. There is something that is greater than your nine-to-five. There is something brighter than the cancer you're diagnosed with. There is something better than the situation that your bank presents you with on a monthly basis. There is something better than perhaps the, the good job you have. Or there is something better than the promotion you received. See, Paul doesn't want the church to get so entrenched in the world and the things of the world that we lose sight of the eternal. Can I just tell you, God doesn't ever intend for you to make this world your home. This world is not supposed to be heaven on earth. And the more you try to make it heaven on earth, the less you will discover and the more you will want. Interview any rich individual. Go up down in Salem Road and, and go over uh, north of, of Totten Road on Salem and to those homes that have seven and eight car garages. Knock on the door and ask them, are you satisfied with the house you're in? And they might say yes. They, I mean, it's spectacular homes. But interview them and find out that they're probably looking for something a little more. Because, and I'm not saying that because I know them, or and they, they might say, you know what, I'm per- this is it, this is the end of the line for me. But I've heard interviews done with people who are billionaires, and they say things like, you know, I, I, once I made my billion, I realized that I wanted to make two. That, that once I made my this, I realized it wasn't enough. There was something more. There was a fancier car. There was a, a, a more updated computer. You don't, I remember feeling the, the feeling when I bought my first computer. It was very fun. It was very exciting. And then someone telling me, you know, you know, Joel, by the time you get that computer to your car, it's already obsolete. And there was this drop of my, like, they just rained on my parade. I was very irritated. I was like, what do you have to do that for? You totally ruined my purchase. But they were true. They were right. By the time I got it to my car, there was something better on the market, something better in the works, because it wasn't enough. There's something better. Then he says, I want you to know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints and what the exceeding greatness of his power toward usward who believe. You need a revelation of the exceeding greatness of the power of God toward those that believe in him. Believing is not just a mental assent. It's not just a mental agreement. It's not just a conviction of the heart. But it is always followed up with action. Faith without works, James says, is dead. You need works to follow your faith to make it really faith and make it really alive in your life. If you believe that something is good for you, but you don't ever take advantage of it, then it's obviously something that maybe you just heard and thought was perhaps true, but it's also true. Something else is also true. It's not a deep conviction for you. But when you really believe something, you're going to take action on it. You're going to, if you believe a product is the best, as soon as you have the money for it, guess what? You're going to buy that product. You're going to say no to other products because you believe in the product that you want to have. There's a, there's a, there's an action that follows real belief. And so Paul says, you need to have a, an, an, an understanding, a revelation of the exceeding greatness of his power towards you that believe. According to the working of his mighty power, he even gave an illustration. He says the the working of his mighty power was so much that it caused one that was dead for three days to come back to life. And not only come back to life, but he is now seated in heavenly places 
at the right hand of, in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and name that is named not only in this world, but that which is to come. This is why the real church has always been a threat to this world. This is why. This, this scripture perfectly illustrates it. Because those who know their God are not afraid of the threats of the world. There are, there, there's many who have stood before kings and queens in the face of adversity, told to renounce their faith, and they said, no, no. Like the three Hebrew boys who stood before mighty Nebuchadnezzar with his, with his fiery furnace, and he said, if you don't bow down to this idol, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. And their resolve was so great, they didn't have to protest, they didn't have to raise a flag or fly a, a street sign, they just said, no king, no matter what you do to us, even if you throw us into the furnace, and even if our God does not say, Save us from the fire. We will not bow down. Because death has no power over those who are, have that revelation, that apocalypse, that, that, that Jesus is seated in the heavenly places above all power, principality, might, and dominion in every name that is named in this world and the world that is to come. And put all things under his feet. 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 Feet are for movement. Feet are for balance, support, leverage. The word foot is used to refer to a unit of linear measurement. We use the phrase, put your best foot forward, right? To put one's foot in one's mouth is essentially to say something stupid and regret it instantly. <clears throat> and anytime you try to take your foot out, it seems to go deeper in. <clears throat> to be flat-footed means you're rather unprepared or uh, inept or unable to meet some kind of standard or expectation. We use the, the word foot to describe the bottom of something, right? A foothill is the smaller hills at the base of a mountain range. We say the feet of a chair, a couch, or a bed to speak of that thing that touches the floor that supports the rest of the structure. We say something like a footnote in your, your paper at school is there to reference. You make a claim in your paper, in your essay, and you put a little footnote to reference that claim to give it validity, it supports, right? It, it holds up. The words that you put on the paper, you put a little footnote to, to hold it up and support what's being said. In the Bible, the foot has been an interesting nuance and has had many, many applications and run-ins, you know, that you see often in the Bible this, this, uh, this action of people washing the feet of others when they come into a home something that is largely lost on our society today, probably due to the invention of closed-toed shoes and socks, right? But in those days, the, the, the open feet were common. It wasn't uncommon for people to walk around barefooted. 
And if you were wealthy enough and had the means, you had shoes. And the shoes weren't the, uh, you know, um, the orthotics that I'm thankful I get to put on side my shoes every day to keep my back from hurting. I, I, you know, the shoes weren't uh, specially designed walking on a cloud. They were the cowhide from the uh, recently butchered animals. It was, the, it was the leather sole. If you were rich enough, you got the leather sole. You got the nice stuff that that lasted, and, and it was a, a sandal that basically covered your feet, leaving your feet exposed to the elements, the dirt, the refuse in the streets, and all the things along with it. So you, when you got to somebody's house, they often had a servant who would come and who would wash your feet for you as a sign of hospitality. Uh, Abigail washed the feet of David and his men in 1 Samuel 25. Uh, Abraham and the angels of the Lord, Abraham offered to get his servants to wash the feet of the angels as they showed up uh, uh, uninvited to his tent. John the Baptist said that he was unworthy to unlatch the, sand, the, the sandals of the Messiah, essentially to wash his feet. And so there was this idea of feet in the Bible that they, yes, were important and supportive, but they were also dirty. To speak with the feet was expressive of the eloquence of abusive and obscene justification among the Oriental people. In fact, in the Orient, if you see them taking a sandal and hitting someone with it, that's like throwing up the middle finger. It's pretty much uh, a supreme uh, insult. In fact, it's actually insulting. In North America, we do this, this little thing when we sit down and cross our legs and do this. This is an extreme insult, and I just basically insulted all of you here this morning by showing you the bottoms of my feet. When you fall at somebody's feet in the Bible, it was a, it was a symbol of surrender. You, you can imagine with all these nuances to the foot and the feet, that to fall at someone's feet was a sign of surrender and reverence because you were going to do something that only the servants would dare to do. Sometimes in the Bible they talk about someone putting the feet on the neck of somebody else. And that sounds rather violent, and because it was. Uh, in fact, the, the phrase to put your feet on the neck of your enemy was a symbol of complete defeat, where they were completely, well, defeated. <laughs> Even that expression they're defeated. Their feet are removed from underneath them, and they're fallen to the ground. They're, they're, they're destroyed. They have no, nothing to stand on. They have nothing to, to uh, create a foundation on to launch a counterattack. And, and in fact, the idea of putting your foot on the neck of your enemy was, was rather violent because it was accompanied with stomping to finalize and finish off that enemy so they could never get up again. It was very violent. And so all of these things, what is this, what is, what is Pastor Gina, you're telling about some apocalypses and feet and, man, Pastor, this is one crazy, you know, feel like I'm in the mountains with all the sharp turns and curves but, but I'm going somewhere. Hold on with me, okay? The Bible tells us that Satan had feet. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And when the beast came to Eve, 
he came to her and he said, you know, eat of the tree of the knowledge that hath God really said. And when she ate of the tree and, and all of that went down and now the serpent had beguiled Eve and, and Adam fell into sin. They both went along with it. The Bible says that when it came down to, to, to doling out the consequence of their sin, this is what the Lord said to Satan in Genesis 3, 14. He said, to the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. In, in a sense, and I don't know if this is a hard fact, but I get the impression that the serpent had feet at one time. That perhaps, maybe like a lithe creature, like a dragon or something, you know, with with feet to get around. And because the serpent had yielded itself to the control of Satan in the garden, God cursed the serpent and said, from this day forward, you're going to go on your belly. You're going to be defeated from the beginning. And essentially, that, that is the truth. When the devil wants to come to you and remind you of your past, you just tell him, hey, you've been a loser from day one. You've been destroyed from day one. God defeated you in the garden. He removed your foundation. You have nothing to stand on. The believer, the one who is washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, the one who is, who is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, has the authority over Satan. The Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Your testimony is enough to silence the voice of the enemy. He lost his place in heaven. Everything you see about Satan, he's going down. He was the highest. The Bible says he was, he was ascending, he was ascending in the Mount of God near the, the throne of God. And we might even assume that Satan was the guardian cherub and he was the one who was in the presence of God constantly among the angels who said to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he lost his place in heaven because of his pride. And then he was cast down. And then Jesus said, I saw Satan cast down from heaven like lightning. It was very fast. It was a split second decision. He lost his feet in the garden. He lost his authority at the cross. He's losing his territory on the earth and he will lose his place ultimately as the God of this world in which he will be thrown into, get this for a thousand years, the bottomless pit. I heard it said recently, the why the devil hates humanity so much is because even when you fall into the worst scenario of, of your life, you always hit rock bottom. But Satan is going to be thrown into a pit that has no bottom. He's going to be falling forever. And so when even that you're at your worst, you fall down on the rock, the rock bottom. And the Bible talks about Jesus is the rock. And when you fall on him, you're broken. And you may fall in life, and you may fall into the worst kind of sin and hit bottom and be broken. But even in your brokenness, God can put you back together. When Satan is ultimately defeated, he's going to be thrown into the bottomless pit. And he'll be taken out of that only to be put in the lake of fire for all of eternity. He's going down, 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 down. You need a revelation this morning. Don't let him whisper in your ear. His power is not in his strength. His power is in his voice. Don't give him the time of day. Don't let him whisper words into your heart, into your soul. 
check what he says with the scripture and defeat him with the scripture like Jesus in the, in, in the wilderness when Satan would whisper in Jesus' ear. Jesus' response to Satan every time was, it is written. Because I'm standing on the rock that is the word of God. I'm standing on the sure foundation which is Jesus Christ and his words. I don't have to be swayed by the voice of the adversary. Not only did Satan lose his feet in the garden, but the Bible says that the seed of the woman was going to take his foot and put it on the head of that serpent and crush his head. Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In other translation, the NIV says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right from the very beginning, we see that the serpent would have a minor victory. He would defeat, or he would rather, he would win over the, the, the seed of the woman. He would strike the heel. And when a snake strikes the heel of a man with his venom, that man's life is forfeited. But he wasn't forfeited until the man was able to deal a devastating blow to the head of the serpent. He may have struck the foot of the Messiah, but the Messiah was able to get to his head and to crush his head. When you crush the head of something, when the head of an organization falls, you might understand that to mean that the organization has come apart. They've lost their authority. They've lost their ability. They've lost their working power. And so it is with Satan. When Satan was, was defeated on the cross, when he was uh, uh, totally crushed, his authority was crushed, his head was crushed by the feet of Jesus. See, the death of Jesus was real. It was not something falsified. It was not something that disciples used to, 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 I believe the reason why the cross was so horrible and horrific was to be an evidence of certain death. There was no way to work around it. There was no possibility that maybe he just passed out and came to life and was rejuvenated a little bit later. No, his body was so broken and so wounded and so decimated. Every cell in his body was broken down to the point of utter death. So the death of the Messiah was real. And he was bruised. His head, his feet rather, his, his heel was bruised. But Satan had no idea that the cross would mean certain defeat eternally for him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 says, The princes of this world knew it not, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isaiah recorded Satan's plan that got him booted out of heaven. Satan hates the church so much because he, 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 the church gets everything that Satan lusted for. He said, I will ascend into heaven. And the Bible tells the church that the church is going to ascend because the Lord himself is going to descend out of heaven with the voice of the angel, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and the we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. We will ascend into heaven. He said, I want to exalt my throne above the stars of God. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus has made the church to sit together in the heavenly places among the stars of the heavens. And he says that, that if you remain in the church and part of the church in Revelation 20 verse 6, it promises that, that you will reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years on the earth. 
Satan said, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. But that, that place is reserved strictly for the church. In Psalm 48, verse 2, it says, Beautiful for situation and the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And in, and in Hebrews 12, the Bible says the church has become Mount Zion. The church is now the city of Jerusalem. The church is now the chosen place of God. It's not, not, the, not the, the, the actual location in Israel that's now God's city, but it's the church. The church is now, the Bible calls, the new Jerusalem. Satan said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. But that's a promise given to the church. And Satan said, I want to be like the Most High. And oh, what joy fills our soul. When we read scriptures like 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that says, Beloved, we are now the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Everything Satan desired, everything he fought for, everything he tried to assume himself, God has turned around and given it to the church. You can understand and get a revelation why he hates your ever-living guts. He hates you to the very core of your being. And he'll try to deceive you to be like your friend. He'll try and make you think that friendship with him is going to gain you something in this life and in this world. Uh, I'm here to tell you, he has no concern for your soul. He has no regard for your feelings. He has nothing that he desires more than to steal what you have, to kill you, and then to destroy you. I have failed to understand the kind of psychosis a serial killer goes through because they're not content with just kidnapping the individual and having their way with that person. They're not content with just killing them to destroy the evidence. No, often the serial killer goes as far as to dismember and disintegrate and hide and even defile the body of those victims that they have captured. There is nothing more satanic than that because that's what Satan does. He desires to steal. He's not just content to steal what you have. He wants to kill it. And he doesn't want to just kill it. He wants to destroy it, dismember it, and spread it out so you could never hop, uh, possibly put it back together. Again, Satan is not your, uh, not your friend. He is your adversary. And why am I painting such a vivid picture of your enemy? Because I want you to have an apocalypse this morning. According to Ephesians chapter 1, the text that we read this morning. This is what Jesus said. He has, says, I want you to have a hope in the calling. You were lost in sin, and Jesus purchased you with his blood. He redeemed you. He purchased you back. He bought you back with the highest price possible. You were on the chopping block of the market of sin, and Jesus saw you and said, I'll purchase it at whatever the cost. You were the pearl of great price that Jesus found. Uh, you were the treasure that was hidden in a field that Jesus went and sold everything he had, laid it all on the line, and purchased your salvation. So he says, I want you to know the hope that you've been called to 
that doesn't mean that in this life your bones won't still break and you won't still face disease and death and problems. But you just know that there's a hope that transcends the day that you're in. There's a hope that goes beyond the circumstance and the situation you're facing. And he says there's a rich and a glorious inheritance that he has reserved for you. He has reserved for you in the clouds of glory. And at the right time, he's going to bring everything together under the authority of Christ. So just for the moment, just for the time being, hold on to your hope. Hold on to your hope. But it's not enough just to hope. He says, I want you to know that there is an immeasurable, unlimited, and surpassing greatness of his power for those of you who believe. Demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and every name that is named, above every title that can be conferred, not only in this age and this world, but also in the age and the world which are to come. Excuse me. He has put all things under his feet. He's put all things under his feet. Everything has been placed under the feet of Jesus. And yes, it doesn't look like it. No, no, there's lots of corruption in this world. There's lots of sideways movements in our society. There's lots of things that you look at and go, how is this right? How is this allowed? How does God continue to allow this to happen? And while I don't pretend to know the answers to those questions, I do know what the Word says, that He has everything under His feet. And He will one day assume that control permanently over this world. For the time, Satan is allowed to have his way and his time. And there is, there is the job of the church to reach into the gates of hell and to pull out every soul that is there. Hear me when I say, it's not the job of the church to get on the street corners, to raise flags, to raise signs, and to protest. As a citizen of a free country, you have the right to do that. And if you feel in your convicted heart that that's, that's a good measure for you to go, then 100% go ahead and do that. But just so you know, the kingdom of God is not about confronting people on street corners and having violent arguments between people over differing worldviews. The world is going to be the world. Quit expecting them to act like the church. The job of the church is to reach into the spiritual atmosphere behind everything that's going on and begin to take dominion and authority in prayer. When the church will rise up in the authority of prayer that it has been given, then God can effect change on those souls who can be pulled out of the gates of hell. We've got to stop with the Facebook vague booking and, and, and the arguments online. We've got to stop it with the aggressive attitudes. I, I, I've witnessed it firsthand, and it does nothing but divide and create division. I, I believe in standing up for your rights, and parents of those children who are in public schools, just so you know, your pastor's called the school board about certain things that he didn't think he agreed with. And I made my position known, but I also made it a point to say to the school board, I said, look, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's going to put you down for what you think and what you believe. I just want you to know this is where we stand on this. And we can have a respectful, disagreeing conversation about this. 
without getting hot and heated. So I just, and they appreciated that because the, the trend is you get an angry individual on the phone of a religious bent and they, they run them up one side and down the other and you, they walk away feeling like they've just been through a paper shredder. I don't know about that, but that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. And I might be on a bit of a soapbox this morning, but I'm just here to say we, the church needs to get back to its position. That's why you need an apocalypse. You need a revelation that what happens in the system is not controlled or affected by your protest, but it's affected by your prayer. It's not affected by your signs. It's not affected by your Facebook posts, but it is affected by your prayer. And your prayer can make an effective change. Let me just illustrate this for you. Recently, I was at a conference where the, the, the man was talking about, um, uh, uh, he was a uh, church planner. And he was working with another young man to help plant a church. And the young man's wife unfortunately decided she no longer wanted to be married to him and left him. And it was a terrible divorce situation. And here he was trying to plant a church with his wife and now in a custody battle over their child. His heart was torn to shreds because he loved her dearly, but she was no longer interested in following Jesus, no longer interested in doing the things of God, and definitely not interested in being a pastor's wife. And so he prayed like any good husband would. He prayed for his wife, and he prayed for his wife, and he prayed for his wife. He was in Michigan, and she was in Florida. And finally, the Lord spoke to Brother Sistrunk, who was the, the man relaying the story, he was the senior pastor, the leader, and said, tell the young man to stop praying for his wife. Tell him to stop praying for her. Because every time I go to do something to get her to smarten up and to touch her life, to bring her to rock bottom, his prayers intercept and stop me from doing what I want to do in her life. And I couldn't help but think of the prodigal son. As terrible as it was, the father did not go chase him down and run him down in the city streets and try to bring him home. The prodigal son went and did his thing, but for a long time, the father sat at home and he just waited. And he waited. And the prayers of that loving husband was enough to stay the hand of God from reaching that woman where she was at in the situation. The Lord wanted to bring her to the end of herself. But he could not because of the prayers of her husband. I, I say that, that that story is difficult to hear on a good day. But I want you to hear the tone of that story, the message there. Your prayers are effective in doing things in the spirit you cannot even understand. Your prayers do things when, you aren't under, when you're not there. Your prayers make an effect and make a change in the lives of people even when they're not aware of what you're praying for. You can, you, and and there's, there's precedent in the Word of God. God actually told Samuel, stop praying for King Saul. Let me have him. Let me do what I need to do. Perhaps if I can bring him to that place like the prodigal son where he's eating pig slop out of the trough, the Bible says he came to himself. And he said, look at me where I'm at. Look, I came to myself and I said, I'm eating this pig food. I could be a servant in my father's house. I'm going back to the father's house. And so all I'm trying to say is your prayers are more 
powerful than your protests. If you have a revelation of who you are, that everything is under the feet of Jesus, that he has crushed the authority and the power of Satan when you pray for your family, when you pray for your situations, you affect permanent change in the lives of the people you pray for. Can we stand this morning? Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions over every power of the enemy. What is the purpose of this power? It's to bring the good news and the gospel. We don't, we don't ever pray harm on anybody. You don't need to pray that. You just need to pray that God would get a hold of their life. You need to not pray that something bad would happen. That's not, that's not your job. Your, your position is to pray that God would have his way and Satan's hand would be defeated in every circumstance and situation. What is the position of the church? The position is seated beside Jesus in the heavenly places. Not fighting with flesh and blood enemies. Not fighting against rulers or principalities of this world, but fighting in the spirit. Fighting in prayer. Let the church come back to prayer. Let the church come back to praying for their city. Let the church get on your knees and begin to talk to God about all these unprovoked attacks on the TTC. Let God deal with it the way he sees how. You, you, you begin to pray for the situations in your world. Begin to pray for your family. Begin to pray for the circumstances facing your society. Why do we do that, Pastor? Because Jesus has called us to it. Because he's called us to do it this morning. God will hear your prayer this morning. You may have been praying for a long time, but God is hearing your prayers. Would you lift up your voice, maybe close your eyes and reaffirm your prayers to Jesus right now. He hears and answers prayer. He hears and he answers our prayers. Thank you, Jesus. We need you, Lord. Jesus. Jesus.